Thanks for listening to the Read Platform podcast sponsored by Tractor Hypersonics and hosted by me, James Gedd and Paul Rogers. Warm welcome if it's your first time on. We hope you like it. We put a lot of time and effort into bringing this content to you. Please help us keep the podcast free for everybody. Um, you know, refer us to other people in your network, let them know it exists, share our posts on LinkedIn, Twitter, and also give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you're listening. Uh, it really helps boost visibility and get our name out there. So thanks and hope you enjoy this episode. So let me set it up before I introduce our guests. We're talking about transitioning to and getting the most from an AI um, product discovery engine. So quite quite a, a, a important and uh, topical discussion today. And we're also chatting to one of our sponsors, but don't worry, this isn't the Tories hijacking the BBC. It's going to be packed with useful and practical e-commerce insights. Um, so there's my my political uh, digging done for for the for the week. Um, but the reason why we're talking about product discovery uh, is because e-commerce has evolved from where people talk about search and browse, recommendations, personalization, as if they were distinct capabilities, and now focus on what product discovery is, how people find and how you personalize the experience across all of these different user journeys. And Attract has long been one of the market leaders. It's the convergence of Fred Hopper and Locator. And they've got an impressive customer base, brands like ASOS, Fanatic, Self, just Screwfix. So wealth of knowledge from real world projects is what we're trying to bring to you today. We're going to cover key trends in e-commerce product discovery, cultural shift to AI-driven personalization, and the complexities of product discovery at scale. So with that as our, our position, let's introduce our guest. So let's start with Nicola, who's the Chief Strategy Innovation Officer. Um, welcome, Nicola. How are you? Good. Thank you, James. Well, nice to be here. So yes, I'm, uh, I'm Nicolas Maton. Uh, I'm Chief Strategy at Attract. Uh, I joined Attract four years ago following the acquisition of uh, Early Birds. It was a personalization SaaS platform I founded 10 years ago. So I'm in the personalization market since uh, a couple of years now. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, look, really looking forward to having this conversation with you and our other guest today, Imran, who's the VP for Go to Market. So, Imran, do you want to um, in, uh, talk about what you do for Attract? And then also, do you want to give us that that kind of introduction for those who don't know Attract of, of what the product is and what the, the business is? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, Imran Chaudhry, VP Go to Market. So, I look after how we're taking our products, our solutions out to the market. Um, that involves working with sales, marketing, product, the whole site, all different areas of our business. Was quite nice that it gets quite a lot of time with both the product team and the customers. So, hopefully, some of the insights to share are going to be valuable. Um, the introduction is quite hard now, though, James, because you you did a pretty sterling job, I have to say. But yeah, you, you're quite right. The market has historically been distinct in terms of search, merchandising, and recommendation tools. And with that, you get disparate systems, disparate um, consoles, configurations, and then silo data. And we all know that the customer journey when you're going through discovery, how you find something, how you discover something, you know, how you, you get to see the right product at the right time through recommendations or personalization, you know, it, it, it's hard to create those experiences if you aren't joined up. So, you know, they're the solutions that we look to join up and provide a bit more of a consistent uh, buyer discovery journey with regards to product and content. Lovely. So um, I'll, I'll have this first question and warm up everyone's brain a little bit around uh, product discovery and e-com. Um, so obviously there's a lot of, uh, I guess, skepticism and concern around the economy at the moment and globally, uh, but particularly in the UK and Europe. Um, how is this impacting the kind of buyer's mindset and how is this impacting, I guess, you guys and your market and demand? 
Yeah, sure, sure. I'll take that one if that's all right, Nikas. So we actually launched two reports recently. Um, the obvious one, peak trader report, everyone kind of does it, don't they? Um, and then we commissioned a report with the London Business Research Group on the state of product discovery. So I, I kind of got a few stats, so not to throw too many at you, but it is quite interesting. So when we look at peak trading you know, last year, um, peak trading did dip. A lot of people have reported that. So it did by about one and a half percent or so. Um, what's interesting though is Black Friday. So Black Friday accounted for only 11% of that total week. That's that's actually the lowest we've seen for about five years. And when we look at all requests from January to kind of November, um, those 11 days probably only accounted for about three and a Three three and a half percent or so of all requests we saw throughout that year, uh, and that again was lower than we've seen before because typically the average is about four point five, four point eight percent. So we are starting to see that you know last year what with the cost of living, I won't get political like you, James, but various political things were happening at the time. People were worried about mortgages, their disposable income. So it, we did see that as an effect. And, you know, our merchants are now dying to look at how do we rebalance things. Obviously, uh, disposable income is a lot lower, cost of living concerns, um, and they're kind of drilling down on the tools that help them sell and engage more so that they can try and rebalance some of that that impact. So the London Business Research Report on that state of discovery was quite good to see for us in a way, but, you know, in some respects, we saw about 60% of merchants now looking this year to really focus in on product discovery purely to try and improve those conversion rates and average order values. Um, so that's, I guess, the revenue side of it. And then the other side of it was around, again, another 60% of those folks that we surveyed. So we surveyed about 300-odd um, merchants. About 60% of them are now looking at efficiencies and really looking at those efficiencies through AI. So... I think you know merchants are trying to find a strategy to help rebalance, but for sure the the cost of living crisis is is having an effect for sure. Yeah. Right. Um, and then next question. So AI is everywhere at the moment um, and has been for the last few months. Obviously, as a result of well, partly as a result of ChatGPT and then more recently GPT four, um, and lots of people are talking about like use cases and the overall impact. Um, I'd imagine a lot of your customers would move from manual or kind of rule-based approaches. Can you talk us through the operational impact for e-carbon teams um, and maybe kind of your view on how you get the optimal balance between the two approaches? Yes, sure. So so the first big impact uh, for those teams is uh, in terms of change of mindset. They are used to control everything, to create a lot of rules, and uh, and many times they end up with a, a, a website which is um, um, controlled by hundreds of different rules for each category and things like that. And they need to change their mindset on that. Trying to apply AI to a fully rule-based configuration is very challenging because it does not give room for the AI to learn, basically. And AI needs to have room to, to express itself. And so it's better to start by removing as many rules as possible, activate AI, and then apply rules where you want to uh, add more curation or drive a little more 
what will be presented to your to your shopper. So it could sound a little some like something complex or that will take time, but uh, actually it's a, also a good opportunity to to do a big cleaning. We see many clients where they they, they build the rules like years and years and years with different people working on it. And none, not everyone understands everything that is configured on the website. So the AI is also the AI is also a good opportunity to clean that, to start fresh, and to to um, um, concentrate on what will be the uh, game-changing rules for your business. So really to to work on what is strategic in terms of rules, and not things which are just there to 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 decide how to present products, but without really meaning behind that. It also allows you to maximize ROI because you will free up some time from merchandiser uh, and you will very uh, um, uh, focus on what is uh, uh, business critical. And from your experience in terms of, of how people need to think about making the adoption successful, um, it, is it about being sensible in how you roll out? If you're moving from rules base, where you said, you know, there are some sites that are hundreds and hundreds and trying to unpick them is quite challenging, where you have global rules, local category specific. How would you recommend they approach it rather than doing a big bang? Is it about taking category by category? Um, you know, how would you approach? Yes, it's a, that's a, so th you could definitely do that category by category for our, uh, international clients. Sometimes they will start on a, on a country or a market, which is probably not the, the, the big one. So they will start with a smaller market to, to, to do some tests. Uh, you can, you can also approach it by, by use case. So perhaps, uh, for example, you can start with some simple use case like product, uh, um, similarity or complementarity. It's quite simple because it's uh, it, it something really mature, but also it's where you will find a lot of ROI. So it's a good way to start because you you will leverage it quite easily and quite quickly. So so you can also take it so by, per use case, per category, per market. There is different approach, but yes, I totally agree with you. Uh, it's not a good idea to do to do just like a big bang on on all your website, but uh, but start by by use case can be a, a good approach. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess the use case, I like the way of thinking about that because then it makes it more relevant to the specific business rather than just taking a generic approach. But um, I'd love to get into okay. the, um, search specific context because, you know, for some sites, search is the number one user journey for revenue driving. The conversion rates can be, you know, two, three, four times higher than non search. I know there are exceptions where that's not the case, but for a lot of retail e commerce, what AI features do, do you provide for on site search and what? Well, what are the measurable improvements or benefits that you've seen in merchants using it? Yeah, so if I can just go back one, if that's all right, James, just to to the, the use case piece, I will come to the search. Don't worry. Um, yeah. But yeah. It, just just in terms of what I guess Nicola started with the mindset, that is possibly one of the greater challenges that we see of those organisations that are moving from you know a traditional manual way of doing things to then to think of using AI that that mindset and that trust is kind of one of the big challenges that we see so the one the the idea not only around the use cases to grow into but the use cases to also grow confidence of and trust that's kind of what we also see um as kind of one of the big things that we work with customers on it is a change you know um so it's kind of little little and often and then kind of mature as you start to learn, but also how you start to then build confidence in it. 
Okay. So search, I think from a search perspective, um, what we're seeing is merchants are trying to uncover revenue. Um, and they're doing that by, they've been doing it for many years in terms of optimizing search for many years, but now they're kind of looking at focusing on the long tail, so the long tail of search. So that's kind of where you're seeing a very low volume of search queries with the type of search queries that you've got are highly unique. Yeah. Um, so because it's low volume and it's very unique in every one of those search queries, often, you know, there's no real optimization or focus on them. So typically that's where you start to see those zero search results. We see a result, um, which is kind of highly irrelevant. So one of the examples we saw with Waitrose was, you know, historically you, you go type in Oyster Bay wine and you'd get oyster sauce. Yeah. Um, which you don't want to be drinking copious amounts of that. So that was kind of, you know, a, a fringe example, um, which we're able to deal with. That's now fixed, which is good. But it gives you an example of what people are trying to search for, but maybe not be being picked up in kind of your trend reports or in high volumes. But there's revenue that we 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 roughly see about 20% of all search queries kind of falling into this this long tail. And what we know is there's a commercial value to every search query that you make. It's roughly about four pound on average. Okay. So in an area that if you can try and figure a way to improve it, there's some revenue that you can start to get back. The challenge is, you know, it's a lot of effort and a lot of time, which actually in traditional ways, it it just doesn't pay off. Yeah. So that's kind of where we see low hanging fruit, whereby AI can actually take on some of that burden for you. And that's where you can start to get some value back. So we typically find that when you do it right and you're implementing AI to try and focus in on this long tail, we can typically on average see about 97% of that long tail being removed in terms of there is more relevant results or recommendations that are being populated. So you're kind of uncovering and taking taking that missed opportunity and actually turning it into something that can hopefully convert and kind of help you. Attract, your complete product discovery growth engine. Create relevant shopping experiences that convert into sales and grow online revenue with personalized search, merchandising and recommendation solutions powered by AI. Find out more at attract.com. I've got a soft question related to that. And um, I remember I chatting to you before this, but I have a couple of people on LinkedIn asked me about this question specifically because it always comes up is, is when you've got more natural language based or like multi attribute driven, which is again, it's the it's the low volume, it's more mm. the edge cases, but you often find that with a standard setup, um, that you'll get the zero results and then you'll just get default, you know, fullback presented, which isn't the right thing. I'd love to know yeah. how the AI specifically tackles this case and how it automatically is able to react versus you having to programmatically set things up is like a sizing. So fashion, um, and you work a lot. Um, big fashion brands, you might have like a you know, floral maxi dress size 10 and you're, you're only going to get a handful of those every month. So it's not a massive revenue driver, but it's a CX play. But yeah. a lot of the time, the default approach is it will look for maxi, it will find maxi or it will know that floral might be an attribute pattern, but it's not looking for a size 10 and passing that. It's looking for that in the title and it, it doesn't then have the added attention and knowing if this item is out of stock in some yeah, yeah. 
de- de-boost that in the round bit. So I'd love to hear how the AI, from your point of view, is set up to solve that more challenging scenario. Uh, I'll, I'll quite nicely hand that one over to Nicolas. <laughs> Thank you, Imran. Uh, so the first thing is um, a traditional search looks uh, firstly at keywords. So it will uh, decompose the query and look at each keyword and see if it can find it in the different products. It doesn't work for that typical example with a mix of uh, uh, keywords from product, but also sizes, intents, and things like that. When we use AI, we will uh, base all the learning on how previous users interacted with the search engine. So uh, based on the way they, they, they looked at product, uh, they, they, so they did a search query and we will look at what did they do after that search query and what can we deduct from that. And so a query that will include a size or thing like that, the AI will learn by itself to properly react to that because that's exactly what we are looking previous users. So of course it requires some traffic to do that. Uh, what we did is we, um, depending on the clients, but with some clients who have less traffic, we can also share the learning between different clients. So on a typical query that will include some uh, size requests, the AI will learn, uh, will, will have learned that kind of queries on all our client set ba- basically. So that's how we, we, we handle that. So we use more user behavior, more than keywords when we talk about AI. And and from a point of view of a business that that you know is going from zero and doesn't have like you know massive historical data, and you want to you know as a business that size is an attribute, and you want to help the the AI and the ML learn quicker. How what what the ability to to like give it that knowledge in advance and say, well, basically, look, when when we have a word like this, you need to be looking for this specific attribute. And yeah, so first, uh, many businesses have more data than this thing. Like uh, if they have a Google Analytics plug in their website, they are already starting to collect some uh, some data about the queries the users are doing. So it's not that, like they are starting from nothing. Usually they have data, but they don't always know they have that data and how to ex- um, exploit it. But uh, but we have that knowledge and we can bring uh, that to them. Uh, if the data is not enough, uh, we can also share uh, we can also share knowledge from different uh, verticals. So so we have those pre-trained algorithms that can be applied to a, to a new business for uh, to help the, the the start and avoid the cold start basically. But uh, but but again, also clients we worked with they they had some existing data somewhere. Um, even if sometimes they didn't know that because they thought they were just doing analytics, but actually what is used for analytics can be used also to train an AI platform. So, so sometimes they are a, uh, we, we can do more with that, what they thought with their data. I um, think it's, I think it's worthwhile, though, just on that pre-trained algorithms, you know, that's kind of a warm standby, but, you know, being open, you need to have, we need to have had kind of that training, that data to be able to provide that as a warm standby. So, you know, be, being open, um, if you're talking fashion, electronics, homeware, DIY, garden, kind of our core verticals, then that pre-training is there. If you came to us and asked about, you know, I'm a mobile phone operator, uh, and I want to sell mobiles, we've got less data, therefore that pre-training isn't there. Not to say that it, you won't get there, but it means that you are kind of semi-starting from scratch because we don't have that 
um, that capability because we've not been building it over a period of time where we can offer it to our core vertical. So, you know, just spirit of openness, very conscious that, you know, there are certain verticals where you probably would need to start from scratch and it's going to take a bit of time to help with that learner. Sorry, Paul. No, that's fine. I was, um, was going to say I had um, an experience last night, actually, that was kind of relevant to this. So I um, I recently lost my suitcase, which was very frustrating. Um, and I had a number of new items of clothing in there. And I decided, and I just got some money back. So I decided to go and look for some of the items. And I went on end clothing and I just checked to make sure they're not using you guys and they're not. Um, but I was using the search to basically look for some of the items and uh, I was typing in brand plus gender, and then I was looking for like the cheaper stuff, so brand plus sale. Um, and I was getting such a misrepresentative set of product back, so I didn't uh, realize to start off with. And then afterwards, I was like, they must have more of this brand. Um, but basically, by adding the gender, it would. So I had three products: APC men's, um, and then when I went through to the uh, the category, there was actually like a much broader range, but they just weren't serving those queries. And that's like how I shop. And obviously, I'm not necessarily the average consumer, but yeah, I think this stuff's definitely, obviously, super important, but getting more and more important um, with the way like the average user is starting to operate. I, I think it's getting even more complicated when you have too much choice they you know Paul I'm a guy probably shop in a very basic way to be honest but you know let's say you go on any of the big retail sites and you go type in you know men's white t-shirt you know which is quite specific in some ways um and not too but equally not too complex I mean, actually, I'm going to throw it out to you, James. I'm going to pick on you, James. If you if you did type in men's white T-shirt into a you know major retailer's e-commerce site, you know how many do you reckon you get back? Um, I know I didn't prep you for this one, but we're going freestyle now. Get thousands because I would expect there to be cluttered with with multicolors and random products where the word white has appeared when it's not a descriptor of color because. A lot of people don't configure the tools properly um, when they put them. We were just we we're talking about this before the episode. Is sometimes the issue is not the tool; it's the business effort to to set up and use the tool incorrectly. So, yeah, depending on the site and how well they've actually prioritised resource for search, I would say for well, a big site, probably thousands. It, it's it's interesting. So we you know we've been starting to talk about the the paradox of choice. Um, you know, we, we all think more choice gives us more freedom, um, but actually it creates more complexity in our minds. So actually some of the websites you go type in men's white t-shirt because it's not super complex. Um, actually some of the sites are quite, quite well optimized for it, but I did it on one site the other day and there's 1700 t-shirts. And actually when you were scrolling through them, they were all white. They were just plain white t-shirts. So I think, you know, we do have this issue of not only relevance dealing with that long tail, but also how are we personalizing our search results? Because we know that people kind of only buy something when they see it, when they know, when they see it is when they know that they kind of want it. And I think in some ways, I think this is where personalization of search starts to kick in because there is just too much choice there. We need to kind of help guide people. Um, the other big ones, long sleeve black dress. You go type that into many retailers and see what results you get back. Um, you that one's also in the dress. You have an eclectic dress taste, uh, Imran. So white t-shirt in the week, black dress on the weekend. 
James, I, I did so many years, dare I say, Arcadia and Selfridges. These are the typical things, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so that takes me very nicely on to my next question, um, which is essentially if you're implementing like a best of breed AI and ML solution, what do you think the team needs to look like to get the most out of the product? So uh, actually, the, the AI market is getting more and more mature. You were talking about uh, just before about ChatGPT, for example. Any uh, all of us tried to play with it, and it's very accessible, and you can really play with uh, with different AI software right now. So so the market is quite mature, which means it doesn't require a, any particular skills to use the um, uh, an AI platform. When you are talking about e-commerce, of course, it requires some uh, merchandising and business skills because that's what you will—that's how you will leverage the, the power of AI. Um, so, if you rely on a on a partner or on a solution like Attract, you don't need any data science skill or things like that to to run the software. That being said, we have two—we see two types of uh, of companies or clients today. The one who thinks AI is critical for their business. And they want to massively invest in it. And the one who think it's a must-have, but it's more an add-on to, the, to their business strategy. The first type will usually create an AI team with data scientists and data engineers. They will develop their own algorithm. So they will massively invest in AI because they think that's what will make their company different tomorrow. The second type will mainly rely on best-in-class partners like Attract. Uh, to help them to leverage AI on their critical channel. So at Attract, we can work with both uh, kind of clients. We have uh, different features for those two kind of uh, of clients. We we built what we call an, an algorithm orchestrator, so we can host and activate some algorithms that are created by our more advanced clients. So we allow them to add a level of human control on top of their algorithm which is quite interesting because usually when they create data science teams, it's just for the data scientists love to work on the most, on the best uh, models that will generate the more ARI and things like that. But they sometimes forget the the business part, of the, the expertise of the merchandiser in it. And so they don't give a lot of uh, power to the merchandisers. We'll, we'll manually curate some products sometimes, but also define what is the strategy of the business. And so we allow the, um, them to add that layer of human control on top of what is automated by AI. So that's for the first kind of clients, which are very advanced. And the other kind of clients, we have a, an um, a library with some pre-built algorithms. They just need to uh, pick the one they want and play with it, test them, etc. But there is no nothing technical, nothing mathematical, and they are totally uh, it's accessible to anyone. Hypersonics helps e-commerce companies make more profit every day. This AI-driven platform delivers recommendations for pricing and inventory that lead to bigger profits. Visit hypersonics.ai forward slash podcast to get a free trial. That makes sense. Um, and I guess the next one's quite an interesting one because I definitely wouldn't put a tract in this bracket. You obviously work with a lot of the biggest brands in the world. Um, but I've seen clients, you know, implement more of a generic um, AI solution and then you'll see the kind of way that they attribute success and they'll just essentially take anything that's gone through that, um, you know, layer of automation and attribute the revenue directly to it. But um, I guess the key is looking at incrementality and the impact that 
the automation or AI has had um, on kind of all the uplift that's been seen as a result of it. Um, how do you, how do merchants typically look at this and how to attract help users uh, analyze success? So that's a very good question. And, and to be honest, the, the market uh, with many, many providers uh, sometimes uh, use attribution, as you said. So they will attribute everything that goes through recommendation or through search uh, to the platform. And of course, they do that for marketing reasons because it's always good to, to attribute the maximum uh, number of purchases. But we, we all know that it's not uh, really true. It's not a real uplift. It's, a, it's just an attribution system. Attribution systems are good, but for me, it's more a tool to monitor the performance. When you see a drop or a, a, a sudden uh, grow in the, your attribution, it means something changed and it's interesting to have those kind of uh, warning. But if you really want to measure the, the, how it performs, the only way to do that is through an A-B test. Uh, attribution doesn't help to, to, re, to measure the real uh, uplift um, uh, personalization we give. So, so everything is about A-B test, but uh, A-B testing is not in, you have different way to, to, to use A-B testing and uh, a proper A-B testing needs some uh, methodology. You can't test everything at the same time. You can't test all the, all your use, use case at the same time. And so sometimes clients are a little lost when we, uh, when, when they, they see, um, when they want to do some A-B test. So. So I think it's important to, to provide a good methodology and the platform that helps uh, the clients to do things in the proper way and in the right order. So that's what we are trying to, to, to do and to solve. And um, it's important to start with, uh, to go back to what we were discussing at the beginning of this podcast, start with use cases, because it's something you can really understand. There is a, a strong um, perimeter. So you know exactly on what you are working on. So start on your strategic use cases. A-B test source use cases, calculate the, the uplift it will generate, and then you can create some more advanced use case to deep dive in the details of each use case. But it's really a test and learn approach. Keep it simple at the beginning, work on what will generate the more ROI and, and that you will be able to justify internally, also to create the, the confidence, the trust, as Imran said before. And then you can uh, run in more and more A-B tests to, to, to really um, uh, configure things in a, in a very precise way. Doing that is basically what will create the difference between you and your competitors as a, as an e-commerce platform. Everyone has access to AI right now, but the way you implement it, the way you test it, the way you deploy it, make it a, a better user or a less good user. And that's what will make the difference between your competitors and you. So, so that's very key in, uh, in the process. And the question I've got, it's kind of linked to the conversation we've had about algorithms, is what advice do you have for tuning algorithms? I know, uh, Nicholas, you said that people can, uh, engineering teams can create their own and then they can use your tournament on top of it, or they can take your default ones or they can, you know, customize. So what it can get, I, I, I've seen this where people can get lost in algorithms and try to overcomplicate things rather than starting simple and building up and learning from it. What is your advice on how do you play? How do you tune in? You know, you know, what, what, and what also, what are the limitations of just relying on one single algorithm going, right, there we go, we've done it. Yes. So uh, I think in terms of uh, uh, tuning, uh, it's, uh, there, is different, there are different kinds of tuning. You have, if you are talking about uh, data scientists, they will tune mathematical parameters, things very complex. 
uh, we, we don't really understand. And then yet it will become complex. Um, but there is also a tuning based on uh, business uh, strategies. So using an algorithm, but configure it, in, uh, configure it in a way that it makes sense for your business. Like, for example, if you are on a product, you are a multi-brand uh, e-commerce website. You are on a, on a category page um, uh, that sells T-shirts, for example. As a business um, uh, expert, what I wanted to see, to show the different brands I have in my shop. That's the kind of tuning you can do. So the algorithm by itself is just push the product that have the most chance to be sold for this particular user. But as a business manager, I want to tune some uh, some things because I, I, I know by experience it will create some long-term value, for example. That's the kind of um, tuning you could um, expect from uh, an ex a business expert, a merchandiser on, on, on their website. I think um, what we... What we're conscious of is different people, different merchants at different stages of how their maturity around this. So a good part of our business is actually kind of guiding. So given we've been doing this for a long time, we have a good feel around what's the baseline of and what good looks like and what kind of typical use cases and business strategies in a specific vertical people are trying to tackle or kind of overcome, resolve, etc. So we can guide merchants in terms of okay you're in this vertical you're trying to achieve this kind of strategy or certain objective well we know just from history that you want to go and test let's say these two algorithms we've got 14 but you know go test these two ones because we know that those two ones typically have the better result for you so it it, it does depend on your maturity but equally what we try to do is is be there to help guide people rather than just selling the tool it's kind of trying to guide them and guide them with the experiences we've had in the verticals that we look after. And so I want to get back to the uh, one algorithm to rule them all. Uh, you, you, you need to keep in mind that algorithms are created to solve a use case. So one algorithm that solves all the use case, it does not exist, at least today. Perhaps it will come one day. <laughs> but today that does not exist. So the first thing to think of is the use case and start by using algorithms that have been created for those use cases. Uh, and uh, in our library, it's very easy. You have access to, you, you can access the library per use case, for example. So you say what you want to solve, and then you will reduce the list of algorithms that can solve that particular issue. And then you will have, of course, different algorithms. Uh, and some algorithms will, for example, be based more on product data. We were talking about that on search just before. Some algorithms will be more focused on product data. Some algorithms will be more focused on user behaviors. So depending on the on the on your website, uh, you will not choose exactly the same kind of algorithms. For example, if you are a small business with not a lot of traffic, you will probably use more product data than user behavior. And if you are a large business international with a lot of traffic, you will probably get better results for an um, with an algorithm that relies a lot on, on behavior. And in our platform, you can blend that. So you can use uh, algorithm, mixed algorithms that use traffic data with algorithms that use uh, product data. So you can really um, get to something more advanced and that's part of the tuning uh, you can do as a merchandiser. So so it's a way to to configure the best scenario uh, for your website and, and to do that properly, you will run different A-B tests and you will go step by step to the, to the best configuration. But again, there is nothing complex in that. It's a... Uh, um, it can be complex if the platform if the platform is complex, but if it's well organized with some examples and things like that, it's quite a 
quite straightforward. It's a new mindset. So merchandisers need to, 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 to learn a little at the beginning, of course. But, uh, but it's not more complex than creating hundreds of manual rules to run your website. I, I do think we need to kind of, as an industry, start to get away from thinking, you know, this vendor, that's the best algorithm that you can go and choose. I think, you know, to Nikas's point, it's based on the use case, but also the flexibility to be able to go and A-B test all these different algorithms. As I said, we, we've got a library of algorithms, continue to develop them, but... We've always been of the mind frame that this kind of needs to be open. So if you want to bring Sensei or Einstein into our platform and perform an A-B test, or you have a data science team and you know they're building their own algorithms, but they need somewhere to kind of manage them or test them or even blend them with other algorithms, that's kind of the mindset we've always had. We wanted to always be open rather than saying, these are our algorithms, this is your box of tricks. There you go. Um, we don't believe that. And it kind of goes against what we kind of look to do in terms of optimization and experimentation. Yeah, I think that's a really nice point because otherwise, I mean, a lot a lot of challenges to people in the past has been constrained by black box algorithms where they're not really sure <laughs> why things are being successful if they are. But also the the you know, you do get certain brands where they are very, very focused on their own manual visual merchandising and they have a very set way of how they think the business should be visually presented online. And it might not be optimal from a commercial outcome point of view. And the only way you can ever get a compelling business case is to run that proper scientific A-B test of an AI-driven algorithm that is optimized for outcomes versus a manual brand-driven way of merchandising the page. And and to demonstrate it, because otherwise those arguments become completely circular and never end. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of comes back to um, that trust and confidence piece, because it can be a blend of, as I think Nicholas mentioned, you know, you're using maybe some elements of AI to do, do the, forgive the term, but the grunt work. Um, but you are using your merchandisers that have that tacit knowledge and understanding how to curate to then go and kind of direct and guide the direction of what is being created from the algorithm, as it were. So we kind of see it as, and it's another kind of industry thing of it's one or the other, it's either all manual or it's all being handed off to AI. Uh, we kind of don't really agree with that. We, we think there's actually a place for, for kind of, there is an element of manual that's needed in some instances them whereby business as usual actually probably AI yeah, could do it in an automated way but there's kind of this this middle ground where they come together and I think that's kind of what we we see more often is the control of it from the merchants yeah I think that's a really nice point to make actually is that AI isn't isn't human independent because the ability to give it parameters to make smarter decisions at scale but still yeah. maintain an ability so there will always be that need to curate stories and ensure, especially if you're a multi-brand, you might have some commercial contractual obligations to not constantly push this brand that seems to get a stronger conversion rate, which an algorithm could do if you target it purely on the conversion base. So yeah, interesting. Um, the question I've got on tracking, actually, and I think this is a really important one for people to listen is, you know, they, they, I think the last few years have been loads to talk about the evolution to cookie-less world and the issue with third-party cookies and challenges with setting up first-party cookie tracking. Can you talk people through how you handle the ability to track these user journeys and to maximize that data capture piece? Sure. So the first attract never really relied only on cookies. There is different way to track users. Um, 
One-to-one personalization, of course, requires uh, what we call a session ident- identifier. So something that will help us to recognize a user over the different uh, page he will, he will browse. Most of the time, it's cookie-based because that's a simple way to do it. It will become less and less cookie-based, but uh, as of today, it's still uh, working on many, many devices. Um, but it can also be leveraged. Uh, it can also leverage other technical features like uh, local storage, fingerprinting. We can also rely on ad, on uh, IDs that are provided by ad network like Google, Facebook. They provide their own IDs to to track users. We can rely on that. And of course, when the user is logged in, it's way easier. We have uh, access to their account IDs, a loyalty card. Uh, we can we can also use. Uh, Credit card fingerprint. So there, is, there are different ways to 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 be able to understand that the, this user did this specific thing on on the website. Sometimes you don't have access to any user ID because the user uh, refused all the cookie. You don't want to share uh, any data. So so you can't really do one person one to one personalization because it's not what the user wants. And no problem with that. It's part of uh, um, the the trust that we build with the end user. So what we can do in that, uh, when when it happens, we can still personalize, but in a one-to-many way. So we we will understand some um, um, uh, we will understand some threats about this user. So we will personalize to those threats, but not really to this user in particular. And so so that's a, a, a fallback when we can't uh, when the user don't want to share uh, enough data, so so we can personalize things. Also. Uh, uh, I want to highlight that it's really what is really important is to create a, a, a relationship between the, the user, the shopper, and the brand. And so explaining why you need to track those data helps a lot. And usually, what we uh, what we see is that users are ready to to share data for personalization. They are less ready to share data for ads. So explaining really what is a benefit for them. To share the data, and we can do that in the cookie policy because they can really check and uncheck exactly what they want to 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 use and why they are ready to share that, their data. If it's well explained, we can we can get some uh, some very interesting data from the user. They 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 like personalization, like they are using Netflix, Spotify, etc. They like things which are personalized. <laughs> yeah, they just don't like constant ads, do they? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, great, and then move. Moving on to the kind of implementation of performance side. Um, so a lot of people, I think the user tract would go down the client side, kind of, you know, JavaScript front end uh, implementation route, um, you know, which can have an impact on performance. And then equally the server side route uh, can be a lot more complex and, you know, achieving some of the personalization side is, is a lot more complex. Um, what's your advice for the best implementation route um, yeah, and how do how do your typical implement? So uh, I think you said everything. Well, basically, you have one uh, implementation that is quick and easy, but but uh, less performance. The, the client side implementation, and then you have the one which is more feature proof. So our advice is, is to uh, start with the client side implementation because it's very easy to run A/B test on a server side on a client side implementation. It's quick to deploy. So you can start um, validating the ARI and, and justifying the investment it will require to go to um, server-side implementation. But at the end, what we see with all our clients, the one who moved from a client-side implementation to a server-side implementation, so the ARI increased. 
basically mainly for per performance reasons. And uh, as you know, the, the speed, display speed on internet is key. You can really improve your error just by uh, accelerating the, the, the display time of the page. Uh, and so that's something you can do with, uh, with server-side rendering. So from a technical point of view, server-side rendering is definitely better, more future-proof, more performant. But uh, from a business point of view, sometimes you want to validate things with a, with a quick and not dirty, but quick, and <laughs> quick way of implementing things and then move to something more uh, more technical. Absolutely. Um, and then the last question. So when it comes to B2B, I guess on paper, um, it should be easier when it comes to product discovery because, you know, most users are logged in and you have a lot more data on the customer and, um, you know, there's more chance of them being a return customer, et cetera. Um, but equally, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's usually a lot more complexity around B2B. Um, do you typically work with B2B merchants and kind of what advice do you have for B2B users? So it being open port, it's historically not been a key vertical because our growth has generally been in, in fashion and the vertical spoke of before. Um, but we have got a number of merchants that are B2B. Um, it, it is a different challenge. Yeah. Um, as you say, so you typically have, let's say, custom pricing, custom catalogs, custom buying approvals. That all has an effect on what products should be surfaced to certain individuals in a buyer organization. So that obviously has a, an impact to product discovery. Um, that said, it, you know, it, it is possible. Um, it just needs a bit more effort to understand kind of their tech stack, their processes, and then cover the right approach as to how we go and deliver. But what's interesting is that B2B, you know, those catalogs are quite, quite large, quite wide, deep, complex. Um, buyers typically will use part codes. Um, those part codes also change. Um, so old part, gets, part codes get replaced by new ones. And it's kind of, well, how do you make that connection? Because someone might be only familiar with the old part code rather than the new one. Um, we also see that a little bit like grocery or where you've got these major um, catalogs that search is kind of the primary activity to go f go find or discover something. And in B2B, it's usually very specific terms. So we see a, a bit more of an elongated kind of long tail. So, you know, if you think about, um, say, someone that's like a screw fix, but in the trade world, you know, waterproof electric cable connectors, you know, it's pretty specific, you know, and pretty complex for us to constantly optimizing um, the search results off the back of that. And that's kind of where we do see AI could could help help those folks, you know, um, because it's even more complex than some of the other verticals. Um, it's bigger, it's more complex, it's more volume. And that's kind of where AI really could help 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 with some of those tasks for sure. Nico, did, did I cover that okay? Or is there anything else you wanted to add on that? I know you've had a few engagements in B2B as well. Yeah, so no, I, I agree with everything you said. I think what is important is uh, when you are a B2B uh, business, there are some features you you need to to handle personalization. And uh, we, we work with B2B business since uh, uh, for, for four or five years. And there are, there are things like a, a pricing catalog. As Imran said, you, you, you can create a different pricing catalog for each client. That's the kind of things we handle natively. And um, so, so there are some basic features you can uh, see, uh, not 
not basic technically, but uh, like uh, needed by all the B2B business. And, um, and that's the kind of, uh, of things you can, you, uh, we, we have, uh, uh, natively and that's the challenge we have. Uh, so the, um, in terms of merchandising, the way you will approach merchandising for B2B and B2C is very different. Uh, on, on a B2B business, usually you will uh, really merchandise your website based on what you want to display for this specific client. So you will do a kind of manual personalization because <laughs> you, you, you personalize it for. 100 different clients or more, but after you try to, to automate things, but you have some key clients where you really want to, to configure manually how they will see the, their, uh, each uh, PLP based on what you know they usually buy or something like that. So that's the kind of stuff that is, uh, that can be done quite easily in our, in our platform too. So as Imran said, it's not our main vertical, definitely. That's not where you will find the more clients in our, in our base, in our client base. But, uh, but we have a couple of P2B clients and, uh, and we build some features dedicated to them. Excellent. I feel like we've covered a lot of really interesting topics today. Um, if inevitably some people will have questions on, on some of the themes we covered or might want to probe in a bit hard, but hard about how they would really integrate that and what some of the challenges of implementations, how do they reach out? Yeah, so, um, I mean, more than happy for them to reach out to me direct. Um, obviously, we've got contact forms kind of on the website. So, you know, more than welcome to reach out. Maybe just put in the title, um, reference this podcast, and then that'll kind of get get sent to me. Um, but yeah, I think just just reach out through the usual channels, you know, Nicholas and I are on LinkedIn, et cetera. Um, but you, if you put reference this podcast in the contact us form on our website, you, you'll get to us straight. And hopefully, from memory, our marketing team have created a few CTAs with some of the reports I mentioned earlier as well, Jones. So hopefully that helps with people. Cool. And um, yeah, Imran Nicholas, really appreciate you taking the time. Really enjoyed today. I, I love products discovery. I think it's such an important area. And um, no site gets it 100% right. We all know it. Mm-hmm. There's always opportunities to improve, whether it's merchandise and search or whatever. So it's, uh, appreciate you taking the time. And and thanks everyone for listening. Do reach out to, to Imran and Nicholas if you've got more questions. Um, keep an ear open for the next episode. We drop them every week. And do give us that rating on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube, or wherever you listen. Thanks very much, everybody. For more information on this topic, head over to replatform.fm for our audio podcasts. To discuss a project, or if you'd like to chat about any of the topics covered in this episode in more detail, please reach out to myself, James Gerd, or my co-host, Paul Rogers, via LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and keep your ears peeled for the next episode.